logic yeah, so this program times us in like we are about to start jamming and that's that's always a fun little touch for me. Well, I mean, it's built for music. I think podcasting was just sort of a thing that people decided that they could do now. The, oh, we're an aberration. like The those... democratization of radio. That's nice. That's nice. It's like how we still have tailbones kicking around on us. Mm. You know, I thought I liked robots. Like, I thought I was really into robots. I thought a free and easy pass to getting that hard C from me was just sticking a robot right in that business. I heard uh, a former meth user once tell me that the debilitating addiction is just one way that the drug can destroy your life. Uh, the other way is when you don't get debilitatingly addicted. Now, you just remember how impossibly good everything felt when you were on meth, and you know that nothing will ever feel that good again, and you're left with this giant hole inside you that you will never be able to fill. And you were left listless and depressed, your life devoid of any real purpose. Because whatever you do, however well it goes, whatever satisfaction it brings, it won't feel like meth did. It is a small, uh. quiet little death. You then die and no one ever notices except for you. Here's the worst take you will ever hear from me. Sokka was a meth hit. His invisible presence lingers in core as the show tries to find every which way to fill the hole his absence leaves. And the result is this endless parade of wacky, camera-mugging dipshits who multiply like a Fundy family from Missouri. Bolin, Milo, Iki, who is the only charming one among them. Varric, Boomy, Prince Wu. Loud, screechy, smirky, and useless to a fucking man. Their presence does not add levity, but leeches drama. I feel like Kevin Owens every time Shane McMahon's music hits whenever one of those idiots invites themselves into his scene. The only time they were less of a problem was in book three, and I thought they'd learned their lesson, but as I said when we started this series of episodes, Korra is a story about promises unfulfilled. Welcome well, to Sam. book four. It is perhaps my least favorite season of television. You said the word learning in there. As if this show was not created in America in the 21st century. A society... That is done with learning. Well, it is... We have taken the tree of learning, burnt it to a cinder, strapped those cinders to a stupid fucking robot as fuel. We, we only learn to be worse. We only learn to be worse. We've been learned... We've we been learned learning... to design worse robots. I'm sorry. Okay, I... I should save this fucking robot for later. I, it is up my ass right now. I, it, it's, it's up my ass, too. We're gonna definitely get there, but let me, let me take you on this journey. We're just gonna, we're just this, this, okay. Sure. So a I'll long be, time ago, I'll I, be your safari guide this, uh, this evening. Sure. So, if I had one adjective I'd describe book four with, it'd be joyless. Are we in agreement? Inept gets really close, but the joylessness does sprint ahead of it. There are. See, I don't think it. I don't think it's a neck. Like we were talking about this. Oh yeah, uh, this is a this is the breach of opinion on book four of the Legend of Korra. Like the, from a structural standpoint, there's nothing necessarily wrong with this season. From a structural standpoint, there's like stuff that you see. I arc away from this. For one thing, there is this stock argument that people like to use about the Dark Knight Rises. They called it like the Dark Knight Rises twice. If we're talking about just like plot structure, this thing has that with Korra rebuilding herself and it contributes to the sensation of what I call Avatar Banjo. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we also 
earlier this it, evening, there's some question about who actually deserves the banjo title. Oh yeah, there is a fair argument and probably correct argument to be made that Bolin should have that title. He's just but so... the word Bolin has become enough of an insult in my head that I have not <laughs> nicknamed him because the insult for Bolin is Bolin. At the end of the day, he has to be Bolin. All right, but let me get let me get specific about this structure thing, so I'm not just throwing fucking platitudes out there, right? Okay. All right, so basic concept of the season here, right? Yes. Cores down low in the hero hole, traumatized, boneless, bendless, spineless. She is jello. She needs to rebuild herself back up by wandering about fighting and meets a spiritual mentor, and then face the nefarious Kavira. And then we do that twice, and <laughs> that does not help this fucking tightly wound serialized season of television. I know I'm only talking about the main thread here, and there is a lot of... A lot of the shitty and good things in this season are outside of perhaps this main thread, but hear me out. Rav me. Welcome me into the darkness. In fucking graduate school, which, by the way, is pretty much a cult that you pay for, they like to tell you that character is king. Now, that's not necessarily true, which you can pretty much figure out if you've smiled through more than three minutes of, like, Baki the Grappler or something. (laughs) But that is a really good metric for conventionally written stories and conventionally conceived genres, right? And Korra is a conventionally written story. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with being a conventionally written thing. It just means that you are underneath the laws of gravity and would do well to acknowledge them. This is not an art film. This is not David Lynch. Yeah. And if character is king, a show like Korra is a fucking monarchy, okay? Mm-hmm. So, who is the king of Korra characters who are king? As you might imagine, it is Korra, the person in the fuckity title. From the screen time to, like, the lines of character progression that mirror the themes that are in the titles of the season, you are following her journey. I mean, we, we bet the farm on our investment in Korra, right? Mm-hmm. And on the character design page, not a bad bet. She's like a hard-headed rustic prodigy, right? With gifted kin syndrome or some shit. And that could be a pretty cool combination of words depending on how you spin it. Yeah, absolutely. And the main word comes in later. It stuck out to me. I remember it was book two or three, but Mock was listing them in terms of one of those this is why you're sweet speeches. Yeah. Unyielding. And it's... A fucking lie. <laughs> or in season four, when Korra gives her version of the we're not so different speech to fucking Kuvira, who was born without a personality. She says, we're both fierce and determined to succeed. And it's a fucking lie. And here's why it matters that it's a fucking lie. Because it's a fucking sequel series. So hovering in the back of their heads is this original protagonist who people loved, who you love for reasons that you spelled out in detail in our fucking retrospective area. Like, this kid is a really well-rendered version of the trauma train, yeah. which they try to tap into in this season. <laughs> but... Yeah, didn't... Uh, lightning twice, you you know how it goes. Yeah. So they're thinking, okay, they think of that expression. We can't make lightning strike fucking twice. She needs to be different. So she's going to be strong and unyielding, hashtag bossed, based, <laughs> whatever the fuck... And after she leaves that scene where she's a baby and punches through the wall like a Acme character, and I'm kind of with it because it's amusing, mm-hmm. it just slowly falls apart 
and then very quickly falls apart and magically comes back together for a while in book three <laughs> and then just dive bombs in the first four episodes of this fucking season. And again, there are other problems. Honestly, there's enough miscellaneous dumb shit, but this is a foundational fucking problem here and why I cannot rock with Avatar Banjo. We start with fucking Amon and... I could chalk so much of this up to just newbie mistakes that didn't just echo throughout the rest of the fucking series. But they tell me she's a bonehead. Okay, well, she's a bonehead, but she could be unyielding, right? No. Because she just keeps eating shit. She just eats various multi-gated species of shit from Tarlock to random minion number 13. There's a lot of minion shit eating in this show. And, and she does so much of it. Such an embarrassing amount of it, really. And in our fucking mania match end of the kung fu film thing actually no, that's not even a metaphor i say end of the kung fu film thing because this whole franchise is rooted so hard in fucking house of the flying daggers core that it's just in the genre conventions that they're playing with and she goes upon that stage of history and just slips on the ropes and snaps her fucking leg <laughs> and it's fucking tragic but we're supposed to keep on believing so we march into season two, and again, we're asked to accept these mental weaknesses. Fine. But once again, the premise, the thing that's supposed to draw you to her, this force of nature, is still just not fucking there. Because first she is this moron, mm-hmm. and then she is this person who, I think she gets kidney punched off screen before every fight sequence that isn't the last. And... Book two is the only exception to this. Actually, not the only one. It's more a book one and four thing. But her high points in book one and four, I would just like to point out, I feel like there's nothing she achieves that, like, Lin Beifong couldn't do on her best day. (laughs) And that's not a great look for Jesus. But... (laughs) I guess what I'm getting at here is... When you make these simple characters, and these are simple characters for better or worse, mm-hmm. and you have this thing that is their weakness, is their appeal, is their whatever, and one and their whole and the weakness you have chosen for them for weaknesses for for reasons that are kind of beyond me. But let's, I'm not gonna write their show for them, but you've chosen this project, right? Yeah. Give her these weaknesses. You have completely undermined the theoretical strength of this action-adventure protagonist. And once again, this isn't prog middle. This isn't fucking fire punch. This isn't going to end at Korra looking at the world tree. Okay, a stupid version of world tree, whatever. But mm-hmm. this is going to end at Korra looking in, in deep space, looking at the world tree, saying, Nietzsche spoke of this. <laughs> and then we're going to cut to a picture of a fucking rabbit holding an egg shaped like the earth. That's not what this show is. <laughs> I have just been asked to watch a version... Basically a long-form version of a Jet Li film where he limps out of a cancer ward, vomits into a bucket for 15 minutes, gives up at something he was giving up for three films prior to this. <laughs> now here's why book four is kind of the version, or the point, where I just sort of collapse internally of this whole fucking thing. Sure. Because, like I said earlier, it's that... They chose the whole classic character rebuilding story. And you know what? That is fine for an action thing, a sports thing, whatever. I don't even think there's a different plot in any of the Rocky movies or its spinoff. Mm-hmm. It's all basically someone sitting in the shit basket of life saying, 
it smells in here. <laughs> and trying to fight their fucking way out. But it's after everything else. And the way they just pace out the shit-eating phase of this is in just this clumsy... Yahtzee Crosshaw loves to use variations of ham-handed. And this has to be something that's, like, worse for your heart. I'm gonna call it, like, fucking undercooked beef-handed. <laughs> and they want to do this PTSD thing, and it is not working on it. Basically, if I were to pin it down to a specific scene, and it's a whole Dark Knight Rises Twice thing. Yep. Which, by the way, I stand by that fucking movie. Whatever. Not today's episode. <laughs> this is goofy, but I love it. That scene... And I know it's because we're in episode 4 out of 13 and you have to do something. It might have been 3, sue me. But that scene where she stands on the stage of fucking heroic history and she's done the thing where she's met the mentor and pulled the fucking poison or whatever out of herself literally and metaphorically. And she just... Have you ever seen a freshman vomit? <laughs> Because that's what she fucking does. I've been a freshman who vomited, so... Yes, I've watched myself be a freshman who vomited. Wait. Yeah. It's Gans. I have. And I'm just sitting there. And... The first time I ever saw this, I did not have a podcast. And I finally just said, Why am I watching this show? <laughs> Why am I watching this program? I've been through... Four iterations of the day of the cope in terms of not giving up on this character at the root of this thing. Are you sure you didn't day of the cope? Because I remember kind of doing a day of the cope. <laughs> and that is the moment where I stop basically... This is where I become a bad critic. After this point, I become a bad critic. Because that is when I essentially stop believing in the premise, the foundation, the why I'm here of this program. Like, after... And I know there's a bunch of other dumb shit that I'm totally going to bitch about, but if there's one thing I will always whine my ass off about, specifically in this genre space, in this show, in this thing I'm being asked to watch at length, this is the fucking thing. And don't look me in the eye until it doesn't matter much for an action adventure protagonist, because I know you people have fucking guts tattoos. <laughs> Endeth rant. Sorry if I went over long there, Sam. Oh, no problem. I've got... Rock me around the Christmas tree. This this uh this is probably going to be a, a close to two hour episode anyway. So whatever you have, <laughs> give it to me. All right. So none of none of that I disagree with. Um, but insofar as season four, yo, it's not a disappointing mystery box uh, like season one. Yeah. Uh, nor is it the confused idiot plot of season two. Um. <laughs> I found, really, um, that in isolation, at the very least, it follows the rules, it dots its eyes, everything makes sense, more or less, on a script level. But I watch it unfold, and it's just the most miserable experience. Uh, there was this mm. stock plot in cartoons I saw, you know, a few times growing up, uh, where the young protagonist, uh, through some means or another, uh, got to meet, uh, visit, or otherwise just learn about themselves as an adult. And the adult version mm -hmm. of them was always this total fucking burnout loser. Like, they were unattractive. Oh, yeah, 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 this bit. They, they were unattractive, had a job that sucked, their life was going nowhere. This was meant to be um, 
It was meant to be funny, I guess. Uh, it mostly... It mostly just gave me an incalculably deep-seated and lifelong fear of failure that drives <laughs> damn near every life decision I make. Uh, I think it also helped reinforce the fallacious idea that one's value as a human being is tied to their income. Mm. Uh, but I digress. Oh yeah, that might be more of a... That, Can that's you review all, a civilization? Whatever. That's a whole other thing right there. Book four, book four feels like this plot. Uh, we get this time skip, and the characters have all gone to the place you least wanted to see them go. Mm. Cora has achieved this job apotheosis that you've talked about. Uh, Mako is now maximum tool, exiled to the least <laughs> important part of the season with the most annoying character they could dream up. Um, Bolin is back to putting his trust in obvious villains like a moron, and Asami is still in this show. I want her agent. If... The plot was a nation. They put Mako in some kind of offshore prison. There's. I'm left to assume that Tentacle Lady was some kind of vice president of the nation of plot. <laughs> so there were sanctions were levied. Yeah. So like, all... they are not letting vaccines to Mako now. No. All of this unfolds before you, and... Once it's done being miserable, it becomes predictable. Uh, Korra is going to lose for most of the season until she doesn't. Bolin is going to be a gullible mouth breather until he isn't. Uh, Kuvira is going to go too far. <laughs> uh, I think the only surprise they uh, have lined up for you is what the final confrontation is going to look like. And because none of this was surprising or inventive, and it all just feels like they're going through the motions the whole time, the mm. season is absolutely starved for drama by the time the final confrontation rolls around. So it's a giant robot. Yeah, you guys was... like giant robots, right? I thought I liked giant robots. I didn't think that... What's the opposite of pulling a rabbit out of your hat? It's like pulling a dead rabbit out of your hat. Yeah, sorry. I can't fucking ignore the robot. It's not just that it doesn't work. And it doesn't. Mm. Uh, this is a show about magic kung fu. Uh, a magic system that was damn close to perfect in how it was conceived and communicated. This show, for all its faults, was good at the magic kung fu. Every season features at least one impeccably choreographed action set piece uh, featuring a creative application of said magic kung fu. I would like to de just deeply agree with this point. Like, the mythos around the magic... They had a good magic kung fu system. Yeah. It had... It, which, which had both simplicity and things you could dig down deeper into if you're feeling pretty tismal that day. I, they had it's great. They barely ever described it mechanically. They always described it philosophically, and that was great. And it, it just led to a lot of fun, trackable. Don't get this. The choreography in these two shows, the choreography in these two shows, other than the robots, you're getting there, is there is a soft rule that no one ever fucking says. And once I say it, you'll either intuit it or just look at every other fight scene. It is hard but not impossible to bend something that someone else is bending. Yeah. And that plays out in every intra-elemental fight. That is, yeah, that's true. Forward march. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so every season features at least one of these fights, right? That's like really, really well choreographed. And it's like creative in how they apply it. But when you make the show less about that, it loses its identity. Um, they struck a really good balance in Avatar The Last Airbender with the fun steampunk technology's presence as something to contend with, and it makes the show feel kind of like otherworldly or, mm -hmm. you know, kind of a little bit more fantastic and different, right? It has 
a visual and technological. It's a it's a world building thing, right? It has yeah. its, it has an identity. But as it comes to be used as a metaphor for the world beginning to outgrow bending, it sucks so much of the joy and the wonder out of the setting. The shit you came here for. Um, that I started yeah. to feel like, why am I here anymore? Uh, like, you could, you go down that path, you'd better be able to back it up with whatever new ideas you're bringing in. And they, they didn't. They weren't ready. Or they weren't able. Uh, and in fairness, I'm not exceptionally opposed to the industrial revolution thing they did but once they brought mechs into the picture halfway through season one that's when the sheen started to really wear off it just zahired so much of the air out of the franchise's soul like this isn't to say that i wanted this setting to just sit there stagnant uh but the direction they chose made the world feel smaller less magical and just entirely less interesting Anyway, it's mm. not just that it doesn't work. <laughs> it's that I'm supposed to ignore that it doesn't work because it's cool. As though this mm. were Sharknado or something. Like, while I have no plan to react with faux moral outrage about how the gentleman from New York shall not be bought, sir, I will ask, is this the best you fucking got? Like a fucking mech? It's weak. It's an inferior substitute for drama. Like, kill a character. And kill yeah. one I give a shit about. Like, don't just bring back some second-string baddie from season one everyone had forgotten even existed. <laughs> if you even think about telling me it worked as an arc thing for Asami, I'm taking your PlayStation away for a month. Oh, and if you're going to try to ride the fucking because-it's-cool thing to the finish line, it would be a good idea to make it look cool. Yeah, that, do things I that, thought that were giant cool. mech thing looked like shit. I don't know what else to tell you. It was actually a great lesson for me because presumably some of the same designers are at work and so much stuff in the show looks great. Mm -hmm. I just finally understand why in every mech show, mechanical designer is just a separate it's, it's job. It's its own job. Yeah, because you need one. This, Evidently, you just need a fucking specialist. The, Otherwise, you end up with... The production design just finally fucking failed with, uh, with the giant mech suit whatever the fuck they were calling i don't know if it has a name just canonically just the kuvira mech whatever if there was a season after this it would have a wacky onomatopoeia name like unavatu oh yeah i'm sure so As asami Kuvirabot. asami right while we're talking about asami just asami i need asami does not have new problems in this season i need to say my final piece about asami go go i have actually i have actually come to pity her character for how amazingly ancillary she is and yet they still try to include her like she's the family's widowed sister-in-law they never actually talked to before the funeral right every season they gave her these table scraps arcs that do their best to justify her being there but really just stick out as an act of charity for a character the show could do without uh, I, I really do think yeah. that she's a casualty of the original miniseries format that Korra was going to have. Like, it was just going to be the first season. That was going to be it, uh, so far as I understand. But Bland, as though she was, uh, she definitely had a role in book one. But whatever role she has in subsequent seasons feels increasingly tacked on until sometime, sometime deep, I think, into the production of book four. Bright or whoever were finally just like... Um, I don't know, man. We could just do what the shippers have been telling us to do. I and, think love could bloom. And so finally, Asami had a purpose. To be the personality devoid satellite love interest to a main character. Which was her original purpose. Never was there a story of more woe. When it comes to Asami, two, two concepts, two mm. little microwaves for you people. First off, 
I've never had this experience, but Asami's presence in this show is a lot like what I imagine, due to exigent circumstances, spending Christmas with an acquaintance's family is like. <laughs> you are just awkwardly in the corner of things. They're not sure if this person should or should not be there for this moment. Every time you are there, it feels a little forced and like you're throwing the tone off. They gave kind of a tacit approval for you to be there, but they, 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 a hint was not taken by someone at some point. And it's it, it just gone on for longer than it should have, right. and everyone's sort of counting down the days to New Year. Second point. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Asami, I'm going to dig into the annals of meme history of about two years ago. <laughs> Ancient history, really, if we're talking about memes. In the stupid version of the ideological war between the left and right in America, both sides co-opted the NPC face fucking conflict. (laughs) Every time Asami has a conflict with a character and the switch flips to angry because that's what she's supposed to do, I just see that NPC eyebrow tilt down. (laughs) And And I laugh at things that I was not necessarily meant to laugh at. Or laugh in a spirit that I was not meant to. <laughs> if Asami feels... If we're, if we're talking about NPCs, right? Then my mind goes to video games. And mm. I'm sort of thinking about... One of the NPCs from, like, Dragon Age Inquisition or something that um, cannot... is not a party NPC at all. Uh, they only, like, exist back at Skyhold or something, and you can talk to them sometimes. And, you know, they have a design, certainly. <laughs> so Asami's, like, a quartermaster. Asami is a quartermaster or the bartender or, you know... Most charitably, that that one character who's uh, Iron Bull's second hand, like that mm-hmm. level of, yeah, I exist. There, there's you know, there's stuff to me. I have a history, certainly. She has it rough. I think she might have it roughest in this season. Yeah, in this season, they're like really fucking just doing everything they fucking can. Like because I, in again, seasons like, two and three, they at least had like the foresight like they, to pretend she could fight or something. It's like they have to fucking honor her contract or something. <laughs> She's a fucking cartoon character. <laughs> uh, I think she has a roughest in this season because it's a Varric screen time black hole, which has the, I think, unintentional side effect of making her very, very ancillary. Yeah, there's, there's there's already a scientist guy. Yeah, and so they end up tag-teaming all their plot essential bits. <sighs> it was like the thing with her dad. I already fucking said about that. I don't really feel the need to go that into the whole thing with her dad, where he shows up to die. Literally, all of that could have played out. Everything that he did could have played out without him. It, it, with just her doing it would have felt exactly the same. No, they needed someone to kill off, and they did not have the courage to kill off someone who you know, had been present these last three seasons. Very well put. When it comes to the Hiroshi Sato stuff, he was brought in exclusively for Pathos, and I have more emotions associated with the grain of the microphone I am staring into than everything that happened with him. Yeah, uh, I don't think he bears much uh, much more discussion than that. It was cynical. Um, all right, so Kuvira. I cannot tell you how bland she is. I, 
I've got to say, with the aggressive shittiness of Unalak, it was really weird to see a villain that it felt like didn't exist. Like, Amon is charisma followed by failure. He had a very good voice actor, too. Steve Bloom is a fucking OG. He's great. He, yeah. he almost made Amon interesting. Unalak is shouting crazy person words in a way that I am a- awake for. <laughs> I remember Unalak. I pay attention to scenes he's in, in a, what are you doing, kind of way. I gotta tell you, I, I remember Kuvira more than Unalak. I think I think it might be a character design thing. Unalak looked amazingly bland. Um, Kuvira at least has an interesting suit. Yeah. Um, we have given Zaheer our fucking... 13 gun salute and parade our guy our guy uh so kuvira is very strange even within the economy of this show i have um i have some thoughts about about her um i think there was this idea of well what if she's right which is sort of the same idea that they give that is you know they're behind um behind all of the antagonists on this show or and then like the the other idea behind her is Ooh, what's she gonna do and it's a fucking waste of time because of course she's wrong and of course she's gonna go full fash on us like they'd even throw in some shit about slave labor and re-education camps just so they could really sidestep the uncomfortable conversation that they themselves brought up and they always fucking do this on this show, too. Amon talked about equality, but the show never gave a good reason why he could have a point. And before you could say Occupy Omashu, he's got people uh... lined up to be debended and has declared war on the world. Uh, Unalak wanted balance between the humans and the spirit worlds, uh, whatever that even means and whatever it was going to amount to. Uh, and there was basically lasers. Sure. There, there was basically zero discourse about what kind of point he may have before he tried to unleash uh, Kmart sovereign. Um, <laughs> except I guess he was right because Korra ends up um, ends book two with the spirit portal thing. See, you know, the last couple episodes about my thoughts on that. Very muddled. Uh, and I think the only time they don't fuck this up is, of course, with Zaheer, where um, mm. he fails to acknowledge that there is a step two uh, between Kill the King and Kingless Utopia. Uh, that his assassination of the Earth Queen had such consequences was the one spark of potential that this season had, but it was, of course, squandered. I mean, what did I tell you? Oh, yeah. What, what did I tell you back when we were talking about season one? Uh, all that shit aside, though, I don't just think Kuvira was that interesting. <laughs> I, I she felt more like a cipher for what the writers needed to happen uh mostly devoid of the humanity that made zuko interesting and not a genuine um not a genuine mustache twirler uh like ozai was i have a small thing with her feel free to disagree with sure they seemed really torn between making one of these pure ideological villains and a type of weasel which are both you know archetypes but i really think the weasel aspect kind of undercut what they were going for with her as this i don't know fucking force of totalitarianism or Mm -hmm. single-minded defend the nation mentality she was i don't know she was she was very serious that was that was her thing she was very serious and we're kind of shown but mostly told that she's also very charismatic too I, I, I don't know. It's like they seeded her in book three by having her be in the background. I really mm-hmm. wish they'd done more than that and had her 
just to be a secondary character uh, so that her going off the deep end like she did felt, if not tragic, then at least have a little bit more dramatic heft. They could have axed the uh, the Bull and Opal arc to make room. I'm, sorry, yes, fan booking, <laughs> but it's a consequence of spoiled expectations. It does open that dark door. On the topic of seating, um, oh boy, I do not give even half a shit about Batar Jr.'s heel turn, <laughs> and neither did any human being who watched this and isn't lying to you right now. Wait, wait. I've been going through our records. Mm-hmm. Um... There is uh, exactly one human being to Erica Gonzalez of uh, El Paso. I am very sorry that your favorite character, uh, Batar Jr., (laughs) had to go through such travails in this season of television. (laughs) And I hope in the intervening years you have healed. Now to the other 8.5 billion of you. (laughs) The man had one line. Like, I counted one in book three, and it was basically gone after that until now. Now, they use a little narrative trick that can mm-hmm. work and has in the past with other things where you're not supposed to care about the character himself, but you are supposed to care that all the characters you're more familiar with care. Yondu dies in Guardians uh, V2, and that was not said so facto, but what was affecting was Quill's reaction to it, right? Yeah. Uh, similarly, the Bayfong also, families. Uh, let's not forget the charisma, and that was yeah, that inter- that also helped that role into that point. So, similarly, the Bayfong family's distress at Batar Junior's betrayal is meant to be distressing, but it falls flat because I just do not think this trick works with a character who is such a non-entity up to now. Yeah, if um, I could actually put a petty fan booking point. Yeah, there are five of these fucking kids. There's so you like, gave and, like some tangible of them lines. personalities and lines to four of them. Did you think we'd be upset? That's the idea. We're supposed to be upset. Like, this would be whatever percentage more tolerable if it was fucking funny art boy who had gone full fash on us. It would be interesting, certainly. It would be like a weird left turn, and, you know, it would it, be strange that he'd be threatening now, right? Yeah. All right, so I'd like to acknowledge that I was uh, wrong about something, and this is going to lead to something else. I'm not in the habit of that, so I admire that choice. It's... It's it's easier. I remember Mako's whole bodyguard plotline taking up more of the season than it uh, than it actually did uh, because of how goddamn agonizing it was. I hated it in Korra's arc so much that I started fanbooking another version of the season, even as I'd sworn not to. I really can see how that happened. Disclaimer. Fanbooking. Uh, the insistence that they should have written it like this and that would have been better if you'd only listened to me, the fan, uh, is not just bad but downright invalid media criticism. It ignores that collaborative media involves hundreds if not thousands of moving parts and offers a big, lumbering, blunt instrument of a solution to one or usually dozens of very complex problems. Given how goddamn treacherous the process of making media is, it is a miracle that anything good ever gets made at all. Uh, You nor I are not smarter nor are we more in tune with the story and characters than the people who write the story and those characters. To assume as such uh, is the epitome of arrogance. Mm, Alright, cool? Arrogance. Cool. I'm going to do it anyway uh, as a thought experiment (laughs) uh, at best and uh, as a cathartic exercise at worst. Uh, Bear with me for five minutes. Okay. I'm a, I'm a bear. I'm okay. Bear. I'm Paul Bearing right now. This fucking show. Woo! 
Okay, so in brief, uh, have Mako and Bolin switch places, uh, with Mako as the big believer in law and order and Bolin as the uh, silly foil for a much more pretentious and stuffy but no less arrogant version of Prince Wu, right? Okay. Okay. Korra and Kuvira begin the season as nominal allies, uh, because in this version, Korra is still immeasurably damaged from her fight with Zaheer, but instead of being a chump for most of the season, uh, she instead is misguided. Not out of character for her, given everything. Uh, she can still have the post-traumatic stress she's dealing with, but it's not uh, expressed via the ham-handed scary Korra that makes you lose. Um, <laughs> it is expressed with Korra's mounting desperation to reverse her failures. I fucking love that thing. Go on. <laughs> And it makes her dangerous instead of impotent. No tough. So, so she wises up when Kuvira declares the Earth Empire, uh, because that wasn't part of the deal. Mako wises up at the same time Bolin did in the actual version of this season. Uh, and now he's the one who has to be an odd couple with Varric. Works better. One serious and one silly, and Mako has a way better reasons to hate Varric uh, than Bolin did. So their overcoming this uh, is a little bit more meaningful. Mm. No tough. Uh, what's up? If I could just... I want to agree with you mm-hmm. on the fucking Mako fucking Howard Hughes knockoff pairing Varric. Because the way that basic comedy works... Forget Adventure. We're not, we're not there in this season. Mm-hmm. Me serious, man. <laughs> serious information. Me silly, man. <laughs> Me serious, man. How dare. <laughs> and that's a joke. And that's a joke right there. And they made Bolin serious, man. And he's not. He I just know. fundamentally isn't. And it, it doesn't feel like his character has grown. It feels like he's been <laughs> given a role that he's not suited for. Yeah. We ask any mention of the re-education, slave labor, or the kind of pre-genocide-y bits about her throwing non-Earth nation subjects into camps. Uh, we actually we need to actually prove that Kuvira's authoritarianism is wrong. No shortcuts. Uh, that it leads to an aggressive and unjustified war with the United Republic that it uh, mm-hmm. end with untold civilian casualties, uh, which is completely plausible, is enough. No fucking tough. <laughs> Tenzin, in this version, died at Zaheer's hand. Uh, he has fuck all to do in this season anyway and would have made his last stand uh, not just great, but perfect if he yeah. died. Janora would then have to step up to lead the Air Nomads, something she is not ready for, but has to out of necessity. You get a fun callback to Aang's dilemma this way. The last third or so of the season ends up mostly unchanged. Uh, Korra can still go back to visit to here and go stronger for it. You can still have the little rescue arc and it doesn't require Toph. The only major change is no fucking robot this time. <laughs> Big pitch battle. Uh, object of the game to destroy the spirit cannon. Uh, limitless options for fun action vignettes everywhere. Uh, what began as magic I, kung I fu can end as magic kung fu without having to recycle the drill from Avatar as a fan servicey mech. No Toph. Yeah. uh seriously toff's inclusion in this season i and i'm done with the fan booking (laughs) you done with the fan booking done with the fan booking that was that was my sam's version of season Uh, four i have to disagree with you with one point in your fan booking sure so you said no toff without following it with a litany of deeply personal insults uh that's that's what i'm getting to right now okay okay well do you children think that we are children? <laughs> like, do you think that you could just fucking 
dump the gray paint bucket tool <laughs> on the same fucking character design in the same fucking clothes, talking the same way as an old lady who has been on a 30-year walk-the-world quest for enlightenment. 20, but who's counting? Who presumably has found some degree of this bullshit enlightenment because she can detect things around the world through spirit vines now. And in flashbacks has demonstrated had matured as a person. And then you just throw them back down there doing aggressive 10-year-old things, and you think a blood vessel is not going to break in the back of my eye? If I have, like, an embolism in three fucking years, it's not a Jamaican diet. It's not whatever form of borderline suicide, <laughs> breakdancing that I've been doing. I do breakdancing, the smoking of dances, Jamaican food, the smoking of food. <laughs> no. It is just processing this... Gift you've laid before me as a fan of yeah, your franchise. Gift, gift is actually the exact word I use. Um, Toph's inclusion in this season was a transparently undeserved gift to the Reddit army. Um, <laughs> the Reddit army. And, Wait, no, no. The, the, <laughs> that made me smile. I'm so glad. It's 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 good to laugh sometimes. And just as cynical as them bringing back Iroh. Uh, it reads as a near desperate attempt to pump the numbers for a show that's not even getting a fifth season and they knew it. Uh, they tried justifying her inclusion later uh, later on by having her bring about a resolution to the Lin Suyin uh, family drama. But first off, it was already pretty resolved at the mm. end of the last season. And second, uh, the Lin is still mad at her mom arc was not exactly invented a whole cloth for this, but it basically was. Uh, if, if anything needed more screen time, it was the Asami romance arc that is a thing now guys yeah and I get that Nick legit just put the kibosh on it um which is why it felt unearned but it's not even the only arc that deserved more time as I as I mentioned Tenzin is left with nothing to do in this season like nothing it give is him so something strange to watch him just exist like, and give, fall off camera give Asami a character quirk for pity's sake uh, expand Zaheer's role expand Mako's role you had so many options and you chose fan service seriously Asami anything like have her I don't care have her eating lychee nuts in every fucking scene I don't know <laughs> something for the love of god <laughs> That Nick cut their budget and they had to make a, uh, a recap episode is not the production team's fault. I respect that. With that in mind, please respect that I did not watch it. I'm uh, going to be really nice to the existence of the recap episode. And instead talking about my irritation at the concept or wasting my fucking time. Because, you know, outside whatever, I'm only going to talk about the writing of the dumb little fucking dialogue snippets over it. That I'm not counting it against the season's final grade is a gift, by the way. Fair enough. I am, because... That little Varric mix-mash version of the plot thing they do at the end, because for some reason, the Ember Island players has become this glowing light across the water that Gatsby... Fitting this is in the 1920s is just considering swimming across the fucking Hudson River to reach. Long Island Sound. Considering swimming across a Long Island Sound to reach. It's fucking fascinating. I don't know. It, 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 it doesn't help. It's... There really are no words. I don't even know if I want to touch the whole Korra Asami thing. Like... It does feel loaded. I'm going to try. Am I explicitly against it? No. 
not on principle, of course, and uh, not even in a writing sense. Like, I don't even think it's queer baiting either, for reasons previously described. The network. The network just, yeah. That said, power is dark and terrible. Yeah. Uh, but it is a boring, mediocre pairing of two characters who lack chemistry before they made the choice to hook them up and continue not to have any chemistry after the fact. So, with that in mind, I think it's about as well handled as every other romance arc on this fucking show. Uh, and if you've been listening to the last few episodes, <laughs> that is not a particularly high bar. Legit, the best moment in Korra that involved any of the romance arcs uh, was when she and Mako broke up at the end of season two. Mm. Season two. So that's the, telling. Well, that's rough. That's re- yeah. You me, this doesn't work. Is it was a good scene. It was like a really the, good scene. I think in hindsight, the reason that the uh, sort of last innings thing they did of the Korasami thing hits negative bells so strong of so many people. Whether or not you are in or outside of that category. What's unearned. Is it's unearned, yeah. Is that... It's the ecosystem it's in. Like, every other relationship in this show is a sort of blunt object. Mm-hmm. Which is an approach. And then you are essentially asked to buy that this one has been soft the entire time. When that is just not how you have trained us to deal with the relationships in this franchise. Like, even the... Romance arcs, I think... When I think about The Last Airman, I even think that those are sort of blunt objects. That's not like a positive or negative review. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just, just that it's how it's handled. Yeah. It's just how it's handled. I and actually think... I actually think that Aang and Katara's romance arc is handled a little bit more sneakily uh, in that it develops very organically. They mostly just get to trust one another at first. There's Most of the denouements are just them I think the dynamics. one another with their... I think uh, the dynamics. Their... I think in terms of introducing its existence, there are, like, episodes dedicated oh, to sure. fortune okay, telling fine. and shit. Yeah. All right. So it makes this thing where... And I know the letter thing is, I guess, supposed to be very tangible, as tangible as a network would let us. Yeah. But... Maybe it's because I have been in advertising so long, so I know the twin hells of appeasing the client or half appeasing the client or doing your own thing mm-hmm. appeasing the client is fine doing your own thing is fine the chimera is where the darkness lies <laughs> and they ended up with a chimera in this plot line yeah I, I again it's not so much their fault it's mm. what am i i i guess it's it is that thing where it's a miracle anything Anything good ever happens. I have one big legit gripe that I think is not like nitpicking or being unfair or anything. And it is that they very, very clearly made the decision to do this relationship arc while they were, while season four, while book four was in production. They just decided that they were going to do this and then did it. You needed to seed this or at least start, get the ball rolling way the fuck back in season two in order to do this and they didn't it just Mm -hmm. it's like this is a thing now guys we're doing this now and it's when this happens on tv doesn't matter you know what the pairing looks like what you know combination of genders or whatever the hell it is it never ever ends up looking too good you need to develop this over time you need to give this time and no time was ever given to it if you're a community fan Mm-hmm. there's a particularly funny scene where they contemplate what each 
boning or romantic pairing would look like, just looking across the room at each other. Mm-hmm. And because of that scene, there is legitimately a better argument for every romantic pairing in community than Korosami at the end of this season. Mm. Like, every crack ship you can come up with between the core cast, you can at least have a fucking MLA-style citation. <laughs> There's there's sort of a caveat to this where, you know, two characters who are just introduced get a relationship arc together. I think that is different because uh, they're introduced within the context of this relationship arc. It's like these two characters who have been there in the same room for this amount of time. No, you need to do more to make this believable. You need to have been you need to have made this decision a longer time ago than this. And I guess the reason that we're dropping a lot of needs in the discussion of this relationship is that you've also very much made this show about shipping at least 15%, I'd say. Yeah, they did. Uh, They did, and that's not a decision that I support. I can't make your choices for you. I can say that you did crash your car in that car race. (laughs) I can see the smoke riseth from the engine. It is not what the kids call a good look. This is something different and mostly just something that I need to get off my chest because I need to be free of this show. Go, go, the bitch, go. The bitch tears that I shed when it became clear that Varric was going to be a major secondary character <laughs> this season could power Las Vegas for a month. As I expressed before, book four is a clown car of everything I hope I wouldn't see popping out in sequence and doing fucking goofy pratfalls as I screeched and I wailed and I shit and I pissed myself in my <laughs> impotence. Every morning I wake up with one hand around my throat and the other around my dick as my mind and my body try and fail to fix what has been broken the only way they know how. But they are as doomed to fail as childhood is doomed to end far sooner than it has any right to do and maybe that's what I'm really upset about. Still, as I near 30 in a world quantifiably lesser than the ones my parents had, this is a show for 13-year-olds that I watched when I was 20. I bitch about a clown car, but I am the clown, the sad kind that you laugh at out of pity and he hates you for it, but not so much as he hates himself for how he can't move on. Sam. Anyway, Varric sucks, and if you like Varric, then fuck you. Oh, yeah, if you like Varric, then I know, eat a bowl of bees. Sam, mm-hmm. mine son, mine father. When it came to Varric's reappearance in this fucking show, it made me appreciate Zaheer more in a very sideways way. And here's why. We stand for Zaheer on this show. We do stand for Zaheer. But <laughs> here's why. Shit, do we ever stand but for here's, Zaheer? Here's particularly why. Zaheer has that whole Guru Lagima rant. Abandon your earthly tether. Release yourself from this world. Empty yourself and be free. I can't stop And as Varric returns to the screen, for once, instead of feeling that incandescent rage that drives me sometimes and keeps me tethered to this earth, I abandoned the cord that ties me to this sinful planet. And I felt my spirit... Be free. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I... I couldn't do it. And, you know, it annoyed Sam a little because I'm like, I'm just sitting there cross-legged, hovering two feet above the ground, and he's trying to fucking watch TV here. (laughs) Woo-hoo-hoo. 
this show has made me its prisoner and I want to be free. I think when it comes to the general suck of the robots in this. Yeah. I have mentioned that in my general enjoyment of mechs, this this could have very well have been, I don't know, mechaboo hell or whatever, right? Yeah. Because I, I just like yeah, those default it, things. It, it's awesome. And honestly, this raised my self-esteem because I thought I was just a mark for that content. Like, I'll just give a thing a free two-letter grade boost. I, we talked about this back when we were talking about book one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I, I, maybe I'm not because... No, it's you know insulting. What else I like? It's insulting. It's insulting. You know what else I fucking like? I like breakdancing. Mm-hmm. And if Kuvira had thrown the fucking cardboard down in front of Korra and said, Are you ready to get smoked, Avatar? And then she'd have gotten smoked. And then she'd have gotten smoked, furthering the great failure oh. avalanche. I would have been displeased. I kept doing this bitter thing. Every time Korra fucks up in this season. And it's not fair. And I know it's not fair. But I kept doing it. Where every time she just fucking falls on her goddamn face. I just found myself being like. Aang would have done better. Aang would have <laughs> oh, yeah. won. Oh that wouldn't have happened to Aang. And again it's not fair. It's not in good faith. It's, it is in fact in very bad faith. It might be in bad faith. But it's very funny to watch happen. Like live in real time. <laughs> Like, it puts a smile on my face when he says it, and I think, damn, I can't really build a review point around that, except kind of my original rant. Actually, you know, fuck it, if you want to fucking summarize my entire fucking Avatar failure face slash banjo rant, mm-hmm. you can just say Aang would have done it. Aang would have fucking killed this shit. <laughs> he'd have found a way. He'd have won that fight. This is goddamn He wouldn't have trusted this asshole. He would have tried to be fair. We wouldn't have trusted this asshole, and this asshole is seven different fucking characters. I'm going to um, give this show its um, backhanded compliment now. Sure. That fucking running gag of mine about this whole fucking show that there are just some really well-composed action scenes I do not give a fuck about mm-hmm. rings really strongly in some scenes in this season. For instance, in the final episode of this season. In the final episode, that control room brawl between Kavira and Korra it's Great so times. sick yeah it's so sick it has geography it has all personality in the movements they even bring back that meteor like in a blink and you'll miss it kind of thing mm-hmm. i really enjoy that is that what is that three minutes it's in a couple other stuff so it's kind of hard for me to tell but i enjoyed that slice of content like i don't even care that it like ended in that crash because it was it was cool it was, it cool. was cool yeah it, I enjoy Mako pulling through the entire Fire Nation representation in the finale fight. <laughs> That's fine. Like, like they tried to kind of apologize for this whole season by having him be the one who blows up the stupid fucking robot. And that scene, if if that scene took place in something that wasn't a stupid fucking robot, were it a, a building or just the inside of the cannon or any any other fucking context. I'd like that scene better than I than it better than I did. Um, if, I, if it hasn't become abundantly clear over the last however many episodes of this show, Mako's kind of like our guy. He's kind of our guy. I'm gonna get into something now that is legitimately a piece of bad faith criticism. Let's <laughs> get to a, a theory of mine. 
I think you could, you could do my bad faith criticism as long as you say before and after that it is bad faith criticism. I have a theory, a personal theory, mm-hmm. that bad faith criticism basically comes about when shittiness has moved beyond your vocabulary. <laughs> I think you could probably find equivalent logical holes to the thing about to mention in anything I enjoy. Sure. But there's nothing good happening that distracts me from it. That's important. Mm-hmm. That goes in Nardil textbook. And there is nothing good happening to distract me from the fact that a mech that you control via metal bending is so fucking stupid. <laughs> <laughs> this, this, is, this is such a why thing. Like, do you know how little has to be happening for my little cinema sins gnome to hop out of the back of my brain and go, why would you control with metal bending? That doesn't make sense. Yeah, but just, just like have the controls in front of you. The thing that I kind of arrived at, right? Many episodes ago, we were talking about the very facile argument that dipshits make. The whole, why doesn't Harry Potter have a gun argument, right? Mm. Season four feels like they gave Harry Potter the gun and this is the world that we live in now. What with the robots and shit like that. Yeah. I can think of kind of no better metaphor, I guess, to describe just how much it damages the world and my investment in it. This franchise has something unique and compelling with its particular brand of the whole Wuxia nonsense. It puts something into it that aesthetically is not gelling well, which is its own separate argument, maybe. But I, there is something about sort of just watching the magic leak out of it in a way that maybe feels like a bit of almost imitative fouls. Because I, I totally get the idea of, you know, this is the thing that could make bending relevant. That is like a surface level conflict in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. But when you do that, you, if you want to maintain the engagement for this long... That's, a, that's opening a very it. dangerous door. A, opening the door. But if, you want to, if you want to maintain our engagement this long... You kind of have to keep it from leaking out into too many of the scenes in a way. Like, it could have even... Remember in your fan booking it was just the canon? Yeah. That would have been a wonderful way to do it. Because that canon in itself just does represent, like, this is the big thing that makes bending obsolete. And you could still do all the other shit. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to completely air out scenes of their magic. Also, in a way more just workman's note, sure. the mech choreography just isn't as good. There's a no. good way to do these fucking fights. No. Countless shows do them. I don't know. Go watch fucking Pacific Rim or... I don't know. I've never seen Mazinger. I'm just going to assume it does well because it has a huge following. Just something with robots bigger than a person. Get a robo, giant robo. If we're, if we're like talking super robot shit here. There's fucking tons. There's a whole legacy at every fucking operating level of realism. Yes. And it just does not come through in this. And it clashes badly with, once again, a lot of on-point action choreography in this otherwise. Yes. I I probably should, just because we're reviewing a season, say that Suyin Kuvira fight. I was just like, yeah, That was, was a, a clapping, great fucking I was a little clapping fight. seal. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the seal clapped at that one, um, I think it was around like 10 episodes in or so. Maybe, yeah. maybe a couple around there when... when 
it was just a really fucking good minute and a half long fight uh, that had some great emotion behind it. Like everything clicked in that great one emotion behind it. Great style contrast within the whole metal bending yeah. thing. Like so you, she immediately creates armor for herself. That Sweet was immediately cool. creating armor. Kuvira immediately creating a metal shiv. Who I think she's the only character who does that, and that has a little personality to it. Yes. If nothing else does. If nothing else does. At least the the movement says prison rules. <laughs> I feel like this needs a denouement now. Uh, right? As we sort of kind of kind of put this all behind us. Mm-hmm. Uh, just this series. Just, you know, season four as a season and The Legend of Korra as a whole. But I'm all out of notes. I am finally out of things to say about this show. My dirty laundry is aired. I don't think I forgot anything. I just... Like like I was saying, I don't think it was necessarily a mistake to do what they did to make mm-hmm. the decisions that they made about the show and about what the show was going to be um both the arc based format instead of the episodic format with a myth arc above it all or the decision to move everything forward enough in time that the world has changed and that we must now reckon with that mm-hmm. i do not think that there's anything wrong with these ideas in and of themselves. But the direction that they did go in, the mm-hmm. decisions that they did make, that is what I have the big problem with, or all of these big problems with in this show. Um, because there's this idea that, you know, like people hate. Korra as a series because it's different from Avatar. No, I actually would have been just as disappointed had it been the same as Avatar. I mean, I can't back that up, of course, because it wasn't. So all Your you chaos have chaos theory and all that. All you have is my word. But trust me, I you know I I would have liked to have seen you know something something different, something new that did not make all of these fucking mistakes yeah. at every single fucking point. Yeah. Except season three. But every other <laughs> single fucking point. And I... I don't know. It doesn't... bring me any pleasure, right? Mm-hmm. Talking about this and doing this fucking autopsy. Because I... More than anything... I wanted The Legend of Korra to be good. I wanted to love Korra as much as I loved Aang. I wanted this team avatar to have, you know, that same fucking, you know, like, like these would have been the coolest five friends ever, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Um, and we just didn't fucking get that. And I, again, I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. I sometimes think about the kind of promise that the best names of like fantasy or more sweeping science fiction things carry in the name. Mm-hmm. Like you call something Star Wars, just that 
base promise of scale and promise, etc. And, you know, everything else is just a struggle to live up to that. Yeah. And it kind of got me thinking about the titles of these two shows. And, like, The Last Airbender is a great example of that because it comes caked under the promise of, like, Oh, something's like the last of something. What happened there? What's an air? What's an airbender? That's interesting. Avatar. Oh, this has sort of a spiritual tinge to it. And I hear the name, The Legend of Korra. And it's a name that almost has like the same potential to me, right? Mm-hmm. You call it like it's like the legend of oh, it's like the myth of this thing, the the story worth telling. Yeah. Of this person. Yes. And then the story of this person, specifically this person, everything riding on this person, feels like this bad story someone told me in a bar about this time they got their ass kicked. <laughs> and I'm at the end saying, like, thanks. And I guess that's my review of the uh, fucking chorus cycle of Avatar. Thanks. I've uh, I've spoken my piece. The rest is silence. Anyway, this has been Weeaboo Hell. It's Weeaboo Hell. Pro Bending did take up too much. 